In many ways, this is a very fascinating psalm. Um, I'll let you know before we uh, read it that many of the liberal commentators, because of the uh, sharp change in uh, the psalm in the middle, think this is actually two psalms stuck together. I, of course, do not hold to that opinion. Uh, I see it all actually fits together quite nicely. So, um, anyway, um, of course, it is here in Psalm 95, there is no uh, attribution as to who it is from. However, as we heard in Hebrews chapter 4, David wrote it. So, uh, we take the testimony of Hebrews 2 on that as well. All right, Psalm 95. Oh, come and let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let's pray. Jesus, as our prophet, speak to us from the Father. Tell us the things that we need to know about your great salvation as well as our persistent struggle with sin. For we even sang that we are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. As our great high priest, intercede for us before the Father and work in us so that we experience the forgiveness and newness of life that come through your death resurrection, and ascension. And as our King, subdue the sin that still inhabits our hearts. Work in us to produce greater love and loyalty. We ask that you do this as we hear your word read and preached today and each Lord's Day. Amen. Many congregations, unfortunately, are plagued by what we often call the worship wars. There are disagreements between people within the congregation about a number of issues that take place within the context of the worship. Usually it has to do with musical style and instrumentation, those sorts of things, but sometimes it gets into how much liturgy or how little liturgy there should be. And all of these really, in my opinion anyway, uh, boil back down to preference. That each of us has preferences. Some of you like guitar. Some of you can't stand guitar. 
I hope that's not true. But I know it's a possibility. Okay? Some of you like new songs, and some of you, it's just the hymns. And the problem is, or the reality is, I don't think it's a problem, we live in community. And so there's intended to be a give and take, and I appreciate the give and take that I see within this congregation, that the worship wars have not, as far as I know anyway, really broken out in any ugliness here, at least during my time here. But in every worship service, let there, you must know that there is a battle that goes on. There is a struggle that goes on in each and every worship service, including this one right now. The battle is about the heart, not the music. The battle is about what our hearts will do with Jesus and how we respond to Him. That's really where this psalm goes our response to God, and sometimes our lack of response to God. Our big idea this morning is that Jesus speaks to us in worship for our good. Let's start by seeing the main point, I think, of the first five verses of this psalm that call us to joyfully worship our Maker, Savior, and King. We are to joyfully worship our Maker, Savior, and King. Like the sons of Korah, David here calls his people to gather and to worship God. We see in the first five verses twice they are to come. We see it additionally in verse 6. So three times in the course of this psalm, he's like, come, bring yourself before God, bring yourself into his presence or before his face, and do something. And that something is twice to, to make a joyful noise, once to sing before him, to have or be captured by, to express thanksgiving. And so the, the idea that we are to get from this portion of, what, of this psalm is that worship is intended at times, okay, because we know from the other psalms, There are other moods that happen in worship. It's not just joy. But this time, he's talking about come with joy. Loud joy. Ball game joy. When your team scores the winning run in the ninth inning kind of joy. So often we don't have... We're Presbyterians. We struggle with this. (laughs) Loud joy in our worship service. And this psalm should remind us that that can be a very appropriate thing. We don't need to be afraid of emotions in the midst of worship. Because emotions have been given to us by God, and we can express them, and we should express them, including joy. The joy that David is speaking about here is one that is rooted in God's character as well as His great works of salvation. Which leads me to believe that often our worship is impoverished precisely because we forget who He is and what He's done. Our joy component decreases as we forget who He is and what he's done. 
Charles Spurgeon has noted that if we know but little of His excellencies, what He has done for us, and what He is doing now, we cannot love Him much. But the more we know Him, the more we shall love Him, and I would add, and the more joyful our worship will be. Now, where does David go with this? He goes precisely where I said he would. He starts with a little bit of polemical theology, which means he's arguing against the gods of the nations, and he's arguing for the God of Israel, and he's revealing the greatness of the God of Israel as opposed to how weak and paltry and vain are the gods of the nations. He calls God the great God, the great king above all gods. And so, in their world, in their culture, there was the idea that there were many gods throughout the world, but Yahweh was greater. Of course, we know from the rest of Scripture that those gods are a figment of people's imaginations at best, and at worst, are demons come to lead people astray from the worship of the Creator and Savior of sinners. And so, we see that He is the great King above all gods, that the others are nothing in His sight, but we see as well that His rule is not limited by geography. He's not bound to the nation and borders of Israel. He is the God of all of the earth because He has made all of the earth. And it talks about the depths as well as the heights. And so, you know, if you went to to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, which supposedly is the deepest part of the Pacific Ocean, there God is and there God rules. If you're one of those people crazy enough, in my opinion anyway, to climb Mount Everest, there is God. There He rules. And so he's using these extremes to say, every place in between, God is there, God rules, He is good. The seas. A place in Scripture that is often talked about with fear and around the nations around them, there's often the God of the sea who is a God of chaos. Okay? God made it. The Lord made it. He rules over it. It's in His hand. There is no other God that controls the sea but Him. He is the one who has made the dry land. So what David is doing, he's applying Genesis 1 to his worship. And he's calling them to do the very same thing. And so He is the creator creator of all things and therefore rules over all things. And so we see a glimpse of His power, His authority, and His presence. Those three lordship attributes that John Frame speaks about. But that's not it. That's not all. He says He is the rock of our salvation. Because actually there's an S. There. In other words, Israel had experienced many deliverances. 
We see in the history of God's redemption in the Scriptures so many deliverances from evil. Seth is born. Noah is born and the flood comes, but God preserves His people upon the boat. We see the calling of Abraham and the many ways in which God preserved him when he went down to Egypt. We see God preserving him from the hand of Elimelech. We see God preserving him through Sodom and Gomorrah. The events there. We see God delivering His people repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. And they all had access to this. And they all knew of the many deliverances. They knew of the Passover. They knew of the ten plagues. They knew of the Red Sea. They knew of all of the ways during the wilderness journeys that God had preserved them. And they were supposed to use those things to feed their joy in Jesus. Of course, they didn't quite understand that part of it yet. But it would get there. And so I believe there's a call to us to recall our conversion on a regular basis, to recall the many times that God has delivered us in crises. Not only that, not just about us, but also it's about the community of God. To spend time recalling God's deliverance of the church. For instance, the Battle of Tours. How many of you have thought of the Battle of Tours recently? Or Charles Martel. Okay, Mike Pixley thinks about it often, I'm sure. Okay. That was a very significant battle precisely because that turned back the tide of the Moors and Islam in Europe way back when. Imagine for a moment if Charles Martel and the providence of God had lost that battle. The Moors could have conquered all of Europe the Reformation could possibly have never happened. But God delivered His people through such a thing. We are to recall these things. We are to recall the deliverances of desert springs as a local manifestation. We are to be, we remember and be thankful for people like Stu Sherrard, whom God used to take sort of a rambunctious group of people, from what I hear, and bring them together and to bring them into this building. We're to be thankful for God delivering us, so to speak, from the great freeze of 2011 and all the damage that it did to our property. We're to be thankful for these things. The expansion of our buildings. We're to be thankful for these things. They are fill us with joy as we come into the presence of God because they exhibit His faithfulness. And so... While you enjoy the music during the prelude that is intended to be a gift of God to you of time to fill your heart with these things that you might be able to begin that process of rejoicing in His faithfulness through the course of the worship service. So use it as best you can. And so joy in Jesus grows as we remember how great He is and how often He rescues us. Secondly, we are to listen to the voice of the faithful shepherd. Here is the shift that throws off many of the commentators in verses 6-9. through nine. It, it, it transitions 
It was all joy, and all of a sudden, now it's quietness. Reverence. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. That's a very different feel to it than what we saw in the first couple of verses. Both of those are appropriate in worship. Both of those are appropriate in the same worship service. What we see here is that worship in part is about reverent submission before our Maker and the Shepherd who leads and guides His flock. So part of what this means is that that we submit to His creation of our bodies. Who He made us and how He made us. We don't rejoice in the sin, obviously. But we recognize that there are weaknesses that we might have physically, and that's all in God's providence and plan. We don't have to hate who we are, but we can be thankful for who He is, how He's made us, that we are indeed fearfully and wonderfully made. We also submit to His providence in our lives, and we also submit, or are intended to submit, to His law in our lives. And so here, in the second half of this psalm, what we have is an oracle of God that I believe is referring back, well, it explicitly does, um, to the wilderness journeys. And I believe it was meant to be read during the Feast of Tabernacles. A little tongue twisting there for me this morning. Okay? And so as, as the people come for this, this feast, they're filled with joy. That's, that's why you have the first part of it. Come with joy because this is a feast that remembers God's incredible providential faithful care of Israel during the time of the wilderness. But they're not to forget that that joy must be joined with a heart that hears God. James Boyce is right. That worship without obedience is a sham. It's fake. And so here David is calling them not just to emotional worship, but also to reverent, obedient worship. And that these are meant to go hand in hand, not to be played off against one another so that you have emotionalism or you have dead orthodoxy but they're meant to be joined together. And so he says, today, if you hear His voice, meaning, if today, to them, at the Feast of Tabernacles, you hear His voice, which you would, because the Scriptures would be read aloud. The drama of the wilderness period would be played out again for all to see. They would remember God's great faithfulness to them, and they were then to hear His voice. And so hearing His voice in Scripture is intended to be a part of worship. The worship doesn't end when Steve gets up to preach. That's supposed to be part of the ongoing worship of the church. 
Okay. And so he says, if you hear, do not harden your hearts. In other words, do not refuse to listen. Do not refuse to obey. Do not refuse to believe that what he says is good and good for you. They are to be reminded in that phrase of Pharaoh, are they not? As Moses continually came to Pharaoh, that phrase keeps popping up, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And we also see that sometimes it says, the Lord hardened his heart. And what's going on there is a refusal to believe. Oftentimes what happened is, once the pressure was off of Pharaoh, he went back to his, he went back on his word to Moses. And so we see, or we ought to see, that we can tune out God. It's a possibility for us to do this, and we can do it out of pride. For instance, how many of you have sat in an airplane and ignored the stewardess? Yeah, there should be more hands up there. You know it's true. Who listens to her anymore? It's the same spiel all the time. We don't need that, right? We know that, right? Sometimes we act that way with God. I don't need to hear this. He's talking to somebody else, not me. I have my act all together. I'm perfectly fine. Thank you very much. I want to go back to my book now. Okay? We can tune out God sometimes because of fear. We're afraid of what He will ask of us. But it's because we kind of like our sin. We don't want to give it up. We're afraid sometimes of missing out on something that we think is good that God says, not so good for you. Or as many, many teenagers at camps experience, they're afraid God is going to say, go to Africa. We can tune him out because we're ambivalent. Sort of a proverbial whatever. Yeah, 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 God says that. Have a great day. Just a, a callousness, a, a lack of concern for what God says. And sometimes it's outright rebellion, which is what we see played out in this psalm as he refers back to when they were at Meribah and Manasseh. Now, those were symbolic names for a place that already existed. They're symbolic because they reflect what actually ended up happening in that place. And so we read from Exodus 17, and Exodus 17 is at the beginning of the wilderness journeys. It's before they've gotten to, you know, to Sinai and received the law, but they had this experience where they didn't have any water. And here it is. I mean, God has delivered them with ten plagues. God has delivered them by opening the Red Sea. God has just turned bitter water into fresh water. And now there's no water. And they complain. They argue. They test. They're acting as if God wasn't with them. It's like, dudes, see the pillar of cloud and fire? 
There it is. God's with us. Ever seen that thing before? No, that's only with us in the wilderness. They were walking by their circumstances, not by their faith. And we're prone to do the same thing. We shouldn't be too hard on them. Okay? So, in Exodus 17, we see that there is strife or contention with God. Uh, they're, they're testing God as if He's not really present. And so what happens is that, God, that Moses goes and meets with God, and he is instructed by God to go to the rock. God is going to stand on the rock, and Moses will strike the rock, and there will be water for all the people. And once again, God comes through. Fast forward almost 40 years. Numbers 20. Similar experience. There's no water. Almost the very same complaints come up. And, and of course, remember, why are they still in the wilderness 40 years later? Oh yeah, they forgot to obey God and go into the promised land because they were afraid. And so here they are in the wilderness because of their own disobedience and rebellion and fear, and they blame God for this again. Moses once again goes before God. This time it's a little different because God says, speak to the rock, not strike the rock. But Moses, after 40 years of dealing with these people, in his frustration, strikes the rock twice. And he and Aaron would pay for it because they would die before they entered the land. doesn't mean that they were excluded from God. doesn't mean that they were condemned. It just means they didn't experience that earthly blessing because of their earthly disobedience. But we see that this is the people that God has been dealing with for 40 years. And he talks about that here in this psalm. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. They've heard my word, but they tuned me out, in other words. And so there's no trusting. There's no submitting. There was no seeking. There was only blaming and resisting God in the midst of their circumstances. In other words, they were living the antithesis of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Sorry, acknowledge Him in all your ways, and He will make your path straight. They were doing the very opposite of that. They were leaning on their own understanding. They were not trusting the Lord in everything. And they brought themselves to ruin. So, how that... Actually, verse 7 is important as well. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. They were wise in their own eyes. They did not fear the Lord and they did not turn from their evil or they would have repented of their complaining and striving and, and testing of God. They embraced it. In my own devotions right now, I'm going through Proverbs. And I wish I had money for every time it said, listen. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And when you understand what Proverbs is about, that it was written to young men, and if you're a parent, you understand. <laughs> because it seems that when you're a parent, you forget that you know when you were a child, you did the same thing your kids are doing. They didn't listen. And when you're a parent, it's like, why won't they listen? Their hearts are filled with foolishness. They're wise in their own eyes, and they God needs to humble them. So, teenagers, listen. It really is good. You will save yourselves a world of hurt. So, anyway. And so we see that these two events are just part of the pattern. They're not spectacular in that they're exceptions. They are the rule for Israel's life with God. What should be our experience, so to speak? I'm not going to read from this, but if you go to the Westminster Larger Catechism, questions number 157 and 160, the first one talks about how to read the Word of God. And the second one talks about how to listen to the preaching of the Word of God. I think those are good examples for us to keep in mind. But real worship includes joyful, reverent submission to the God who speaks to us. Thirdly, we are to trust in the faithful, stricken rock to receive rest. And that's really what's going on, I believe, in in verse uh, 10 through 11. And particularly as we see how this passage is used and this idea is used in the New Testament. And so I'm kind of moving from the past and into the future with, res- with, uh, with respect to Psalm 95, its future, our past and present. Our obedience like theirs is so inconsistent and impure that we must remember we cannot save ourselves. We are just like them. We need to remember that they are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways and that God pronounced a curse, an earthly curse on them that they would not enter my rest. So what happens in the New Testament? Well, first, if we go to Jesus' trial in the wilderness, both in Mark and Luke 4, we see that Satan asks Jesus, or tells Jesus, to jump off the temple because, of course, God will rescue you because He has angels that surround you and will deliver you. And Jesus responds to the evil one, says, he quotes part of Deuteronomy 6, "...you shall not put the Lord your God to the test." If he continued, he would have read, as you tested him at Massa. So Jesus refers to the same events, connects it. I mean, you know, here in Deuteronomy 6, next verse, what does that mean? You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and statutes which he has commanded you. And so Jesus is refusing to put the Lord his God to the test, but he's instead going to diligently keep the commandments of God on our behalf for our salvation. 
Let's go to John's Gospel. John 7, Jesus spoke to them during the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus replayed that idea that He is the living water that is given to them. And what happened? Most of them didn't listen. They argued with Him. They complained against Him. And they did not enter into His rest. Because the preaching of the Gospel, as it talks about in Hebrews 3 and 4, was not met with faith but with unbelief. We see in John 10 that Jesus is the good shepherd who was stricken for the sheep who had gone astray. We see in 1 Corinthians 10 that Jesus was the rock that was stricken to give them water and therefore life. And part of what Paul does there in 1 Corinthians 10 is lays out how they were baptized in Moses in the Red Sea. How they all ate the same spiritual food, the manna, and all ate the same spiritual drink, which is the water that came from the rock, which is Christ, Paul says there. And yet, most of them fell in the desert. They had the sacraments, Paul is saying, but not the substance. We do not rely upon the sacraments to save us. We rely upon Christ to save us. The sacraments are good things that point us to Jesus. But He is the one who saves us. So we see that Christian living begins by faith in Christ. And so it continues by faith in Christ, as it talks about in Colossians, but also Hebrews 3-4. through Think of that. There's this whole section that starts in verse 7 of chapter 3 of Hebrews that goes almost to the end of chapter 4, and all of it revolves around this part of Psalm 95. He's expounding it, revealing to them how the, the, the wilderness generation had the gospel, the good news, but it was not joined with faith, and so they did not enter into the rest And so we who hear the preaching of Christ and about Christ need to believe that we enter into the rest that He has promised. You see, the people in Hebrews, that letter, were tempted to return to a Christless faith in the midst of persecution. And so that's what's going on there. And He's warning them, oh, yeah, you want that Old Testament religion again? Okay, let's see what happened to them. They didn't believe when God spoke and they died. And we see in the very first verses of chapter 1, God has spoken in His Son. We have to listen to the Son and live. But we also see that true faith, the kind of faith that saves us, is one that listens to Christ. And so, obedience is a fruit of faith. Not the root of faith and salvation. You see? Our union with Christ, our regeneration, those are the roots of our salvation. And we have sort of that trunk of justification, and obedience is the fruit that they produce. 
But there must be fruit. Not a dead tree. And that's part of the point here in Psalm 95. In Proverbs 19, we read that the fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. And one of the connection points that is continually made in the Scriptures is the fear of the Lord is what enables us to listen. If you go to the end of chapter uh, 20 in Exodus, the law is given and it talks about how they may fear the Lord so that they may walk in His ways. If there's no reverence for God, there's no walking in His ways. When I was a child and disobeyed, it was because there was no reverence for my parents. At least at that moment. There might have been reverence later when I got grounded. <laughs> I only got spanked once. That may explain all of my problems. wasn't spanked enough. Um, but true faith saves. And we see if we continue on in that last section of Hebrews 4, there's two things I want us to think about. One is, is that it talks about the Word of God, which is like a two-edged sword. And I forgot this morning to bring my sword in. It's not a two-edged sword, but eh, well. But Jesus is the one who wields the sword that cuts away the sin in our lives. He's the one who uses the Scriptures to change and transform us. He is the one. Not only that, but the next few verses we see that we have a great high priest to turn to who is willing and able to help us with our hardened hearts. When we need grace because we see, my heart is hard. I'm not listening. I have fear. I have pride. I have ambivalence. Jesus is the one who helps us gives us grace and mercy in our time of need to pull us out of the hard-heartedness at that moment. It's not something you do for yourself. It is something that He does for you. And so, brothers and sisters, this psalm addresses the worship war, not in the pews, so to speak, but in the hearts. It calls us to worship with joy and to worship with reverence. The great God who made us who saves us, who keeps us. It calls us out of both emotionalism and sterile duty to a joyful submission to the One stricken for our salvation. And so bring your troubled heart to Jesus, the great High Priest. Bring it to the One who is suited to reorder it to the praise of His glorious grace. And as we come to the table this morning, bring that. Bring that ambivalence. Bring that callousness. Bring that fear. Bring that pride and say, these are too great for me to slay. So you must slay them. And rejoice that His cross is sufficient. Let's pray. Father, I ask that You would be at work in us through the powerful Holy Spirit. That as we continue to think on these things, you would work in us that we would have joyful worship.
because we have thankful hearts. Father, help us also to have reverent worship because we long to obey, to submit ourselves to you, to pay homage to you, just as we see in this psalm with the kneeling. And so grant us hearts that long to obey through the Holy Spirit. Jesus, subdue our pride, our fear, our complacency, our rebellion. And so work to apply this to us for our good and your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.